Welcome. It is the Daily Objective. I'm Jonathan Honig from CapitalistPig.com. Delighted to join you, our global movement of fans of Ayn Rand, people interested in objectivism for our daily meetup, our daily chat. We're here Monday through Friday with, as I said, not just viewers and listeners from jolly old England, but from all across the globe and all across the, the you know, all across the world. And we're always tackling something that's either ripped from the headlines, if you will, or something that obviously applies Ayn Rand's principles and tries to apply Ayn Rand's principles to uh, topics of the day. And we've got uh, a very special show for you today. I should say I have a very special show for you today, but I need your help. We need your help. Uh, Rosie Ginsburg, who is our uh, erstwhile chief and uh, visionary behind the whole Ayn Rand Center UK. I mean, he is literally leaving this program, going to a meetup uh, in, in England. He is expanding the live events. He's expanding the online programming, live shows around Ocon. So we need you to now more than ever chip in a couple of pounds, a couple of shekels, two pounds here, five pounds here. If you've never at, at all supported under the Super Chat before, let this be the first day with just a small contribution to kind of keep the fires burning. It really makes a lot, not only uh, practically in terms of helping Razi to keep the programming going, but also psychologically knowing that you guys are getting value for, get for value and not just uh, being a freeloader from these really great and interesting and hopefully provocative ideas. And to that point, without wasting another moment, thank you, Mary Lane. We've got a really interesting, I think, um, hopefully helpful show for you today. Um, and I want to ask you by starting this question, are you really sure? And honestly, are you really, really sure? Are you really sure of anything? How can you be really sure of anything? You know, every day as people on this earth, as conscious beings, we make dozens and dozens of important decisions all day long. You know, we have ethically, we have to make a choice. We have decisions to make. And hopefully we make them with the best awareness of the facts at the time and our long-term rational self-interest in mind. You know, we, we try to make, hopefully, this is my understanding, my interpretation. Now we try to make all those decisions with all the facts, all the best awareness. The truth is, however, some turn out better than others. And it doesn't mean that we weren't certain at the time we made those so-called wrong decisions. This is an interesting idea because so often, what we're expected to be is God, right? And we often hear people say, I'm not God, I'm not God. And I think objectivism, this is my understanding, would say, well, we're, we're certainly not God. Of course, there is no God, but omniscience, knowing everything, always being right, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a this worldly standard. There is no God. So we can't expect that from ourselves, even when we're making decisions, even in decisions that we have evaluated and know, know something a lot about. And Dr. Peikoff, Thank you, Mary Lean, once again, for your, your contributions. Um, Dr. Peikoff wrote and talked extensively about this in his Philosophy of Objectivism lecture series. This is from lecture six. I really have, I recommended this over and over again. Um, he talks about, quoting now, all the main attacks on certainty depend on evading its contextual character. The alternative is not to feign omniscience, erecting every discovery into an out of concept out of context absolute, or to embrace skepticism and claim that knowledge is impossible, both of these policies accept omniscience as the standard. The rational policy is to discard the very notions of omniscience. Knowledge is contextual. It is knowledge. It is valid 
contextually. Again, that's Dr. Peikoff. So I interpret that as you have to be able to say, not only coulda, woulda, shoulda, but also add and will. And knowing that even when you make a wrong decision, evaluate the facts incorrectly, have improper epistemology, you can often make it right. You cannot, you know, it's not an all or nothing situation. So and we're gonna give a couple case studies here. Case studies that probably make whatever your worst coulda, shoulda, woulda situation seem tame by comparison. Um, James Howells, he's a Brit uh, from jolly old England, I should say. James Howells is an IT engineer. Now you might've heard about this story a couple of years ago. He accidentally threw away the hard drive of an old computer he had set up to, been, to mining, you know, however many decades, you know, decades something ago, that had 7,500 Bitcoins on it. And back in 2013, he, you know, he tossed it out. You, and you can imagine, you've been in that situation. Oh, by the way, how much was that worth at the top? About half a billion dollars. 7,500 Bitcoins, about half a billion dollars. And back in 2013, of course, back in 2013, it was probably just $1,000. Um, and, you know, dusting up old equipment, piling up old equipment, we've all been there. So <laughs> I'm not James Howells, but put yourself in his context for just a minute and say, He's, oh, what a dumb decision. How could he be such a fool? I mean, again, put yourself back in that context. How often do you throw out old electronics? I do it all the time. I saved the VHS from the 80s. It wasn't worth shit in the 90s or 2000s. So um, I throw it out and people do that all the time. Thank you, Maria. Maria says, never keep a miss list as an investor. As an investor, I, I agree with you. I appreciate that. Appreciate that contribution as well, Maria. Thank you. Thank you for being part of our community, our conversation, Marilene as well. And I'm encouraging, and, and Robert, who's a subscriber to the channel, I encourage more of you to participate. Join us on the Super Chat. We really need you. Um, especially if you didn't throw out your hard drive through Bitcoin. But we're right, and we've all done this. You all been, we've all thrown out all electronics. Oh, I'm never gonna need this, I'm never gonna need this. In fact, there's websites now that specialize in buying your old electronics, not because they're gonna be collector's items, or, or because they want to melt it down for the little pieces of palladium and platinum scrap and stuff that's in them. So, you know, we do this all the time. And keep in mind, again, the context. In 2013, I remember because I was very there, much there, I told my Bitcoin story. I'm not going to tell it again. But in 2013, Bitcoin was really a plaything. It was at $10, $11, $12 a coin. The very notion that it would get to 500, let alone 60,000, was it, it wasn't even possible, probable. It, it wasn't, it was seen as, I mean, it wasn't even on the table. In fact, if you remember at the time, the most prominent Bitcoin uh, establishment, there was no Coinbase, there was no Celsius. The biggest name in, uh, in, in uh, Bitcoin was something by the name of Mount Gox. It was an early Bitcoin exchange. And again, just to know how kind of ghetto this was, is what is Mt. Gox? Well, they chose that because they were gonna run a magic, the online gathering or the, the magic, the gathering online swap. So they were gonna swap trading cards, but instead of this, so this was really kind of, it wasn't shady in 2013, but it was just really wasn't much of anything. But then of course the context changed and somewhere between 2013 and I mean, really took off for 
2017, 2018 really took off. The context changed. And as painful as the whole situation is, he could have still, James could have still bought back into Bitcoin at any time. I mean, if he was a believer in 2013, he it wasn't his only chance. He could have been a believer once he woke up, once he saw it again. Wait a minute, where's that? As soon as he realized that he didn't have the asset he thought he had, he could have bought it at any time. This is a kind of part of it. I think in my own experience, and this is not objectivism, but most decisions are not all or none. There's some other decision, not a mutually exclusive, everything. There's something else in there. There's a third option, a fifth option, a 20th option that uh, isn't maybe exactly what you had in mind, but it still can accomplish and achieve some of the values you hope to achieve. And to James's effort, to his credit, I should say, he did make a real effort. Uh, well, he started, as I think I would do, just by walking through the dump. This is from, I believe, the Daily Mail. Over the past eight years, James Howells has been crawling through mounds of rubbish in the hunt for his 350 million needle in a haystack, a haystack the size of a football pitch. So to his credit, he just got out there in the rubbish. We're talking about everyone's trash for eight years and just started looking for his hard drive. So, I mean, I, 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 to his credit, thank you, Robert. Robert says, if you missed out on Bitcoin, simply buy right now the next big thing. Seems impossible to determine. Realize the Bitcoin winners want a crapshoot. That's an interesting perspective. And, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that, Robert. That's really good. And again, thank you for your contribution, not only in dollars, but in conversation and insight. Robert has tons of interesting programming on the channel, on his Facebook. He and Amy have a wonderful sense of life super knowledgeable at, uh, about objectivism and super positive. So as frustrating as I'm, I'm hoping to emulate you, Robert, today. So as, as frustrating as some of this can be, I mean, can you imagine throwing out a, a hard drive with half, a, half of a billion dollars on it? I mean, you know, I'm not going to say how many pints of uh, Jameson it would take me to get me out of bed in the morning with that. I, I'm joking. I'm not a drinker, but I mean, that's a, talk about committing an error, but he really tried. I mean, he tried to petition the dump to let him excavate the dump, basically told, asked the local officials, said, look, can I bring in a crew? Can I dig in there? I'm, I can't just do it on myself. You're talking about years of trash. He, in fact, even offered the same city $70 million. He, keep in mind, he doesn't have anything yet. It's just in a hard drive somewhere in a big trash dump. He's saying that I'm going to pay you $70 million just to let me look for this. As I understand it, turned him down. So it's painful. I mean, this is about as, these examples are, I, I dialed up the pain to think, all right, however much you feel like coulda, shoulda, woulda, these are some of the worst in history. And as we're, we're, we're trying to explain is that there's still some way, even if you draw that unlucky card to, uh, to Robert's, part, uh, Robert's point, you didn't win the crapshoot. There's some way more often than not, you can achieve some of the values you had hoped to achieve in the first place. But it depends on you. I don't think it depends on luck, in my opinion. It depends on you. Let's go to case study number two. Now, I understand this program is airing in what is known as the United Kingdom. That turns out is the same thing as England and Jolly Old England. For that reason, I've purchased a bunch of candy from Jolly Old England. You know, they have a picnic bar over there. It's new to me. They have a bar that's called Fudge, also new to me. 
Um, knowing that, I need to explain, you probably don't know some of our American sports heroes. That's okay. I don't either. I'm not really a sports fan, but you're looking at a photo of John Elway. John Elway was one of the biggest quarterbacks of the 1990s in what is known as American football. Um, and he, he was just the great. He was the GOAT. He was the greatest of all time. In fact, he led, I think, the 98 Broncos, the 99 Broncos. I, I mean, I don't know. I was a kid at the time, but he was everyone knew and loved John Elway. He was kind of a, who's that good one now who's married to Giselle? He's the, he was the that of, he was the this of that. He, that was his era, basically. In 1999, oh, the screen is completely black. Maybe it's on my end, huh? Was any, any, is anyone else having problems with the screen? Bonnie is saying she's not able to see it. I, I think I'm seeing it. Bonnie, I'm only stopping my presentation because you are a subscriber. So basically, he was the GOAT. He was the greatest of all time. And in 1999, at the height of his fame, he was offered a chance to buy a piece of the Broncos. The team owned him, owed him, thank you, Tom Brady. The team owed him $21 million in 1999. They owed him. He'd already played it. They owed him to it. Now, keep in mind, he was already the greatest of all time. He was, he was like the Michael Jordan of that era. Again, I'm not really a sports guy, but uh, the Pele, I don't know, soccer, these, these are names don't mean much to me, but you get it. He was the greatest of all time. They gave him a chance to buy a 10% piece of the team for $20 million. And he turned him down. Uh, with as this quoting now from the CNBC article with a deal on the table, Elway eventually decided to pass on the opportunity, invested his career earnings elsewhere. And that is a, uh, that's a shot of him at his, his retirement in 1999, I suppose. So again, put yourself in his context. He always already was, a, again, this is, I'm imagining, I don't, I haven't interviewed uh, Elway, but I'm trying to imagine his context. He was already, a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, greatest of all time, cover after cover of Sports Illustrated, choice of jobs, choice of uh, endorsements. I mean, he he was already had achieved, in my sense, is probably every goal he'd ever imagined for himself. Um, my also sense is that his body was probably significantly bruised, and after playing like that, you're beat up. That's a really tough game. You know, he. He could have had just said, hey, I have significant assets. You know, why would I want to limit myself to an illiquid asset? I mean, teams are very glamorous, but they're very illiquid. You know, their money is locked up. You can't use it or spend it. You have to borrow against it if you do. So I can very easily imagine someone like John Elway, who was really a player, saying, you know, give me my $20 million. Again, or 20 years ago, that's like $50 million today. Give me my $50 million. I can you know, always... So, I can imagine him saying, you know, why limit myself? Why limit myself? But then, of course, dot, 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 the context changed. And you might have read about it. It changed pretty recently because that same team was just sold to one of the Walmart heirs for a record price of $4.65 billion, the sale of which would have earned Elway around $900 million if he hadn't turned that offer down. Just have to let that sit out there. So, wow. So it's a tough nut to swallow, as they say. But to John credits, 
John Elway's credit, and I think to all we have to look at all of us and say, you know what? He made it despite that, and so can I. He made it because not of a lucky chance that you're a stock flip and you're a, a gamble. He made it because of of him and his abilities, his knowledge and his talent. It wasn't his only shot to make a lot of money. Oh, now he's living on the streets. Oh, you know, it wasn't his only shot. I mean, he ended up being the Broncos GM for 10 years. He brought them to another Super Bowl in 2016, which was a big thing because he was the big guy. I mean, it was, she's some real values. He's still an outside consultant for the team and he's still worth $145 million, which is a pretty, pretty good amount of money. So coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, the, the values he could have achieved, would have achieved, hoped to achieve, didn't, but he still achieved a tremendous amount of values that to which he should be very proud. And we should, I think, hold him in, in esteem. It does hurt though, right? That one, especially. Um, all right, here's another one. Here's the final case study. Does anyone know who this man is? And first of all, I want to thank you for all your generous super chats. Oh, wait a minute. I'm not seeing many generous super chats. It's, it's amazing. You know, you're getting the original objectivist presentations brought to you by stars, Mark Pellegrino, James Valiant, uh, Harry Binswanger. I mean, the, the list goes on and I could, the list could go on and on and on. And uh, here we are preaching, trading values for values and uh, our massive audience is, well, you know, you're, you're freeloaders. I wouldn't say you're filthy freeloaders, but you're kind of edging in that direction. So take this opportunity to, it's not for me, although I'm not totally altruistic. I want you to thank Rozzy. Rozzy Ginsburg is the genius behind all of this. He needs every shekel, every pound to keep going. So take this opportunity to not only throw us a couple, but become a subscriber as well. Who is this man? Is that Art Garfunkel? No, it's not. This is a man by the name of Ronald Wayne. Ronald G. Wayne. And you're probably saying, Gee, doesn't who is Ronald G. Wayne? Doesn't doesn't ring a bell. Who is Ronald Wayne? G. Wayne. Well, go to his website. Go to his website. You're going to see what looks like kind of a normal guy. You know, he's got a Kickstarter. He's launching soon. Very nice. He's got a book. He's out. Ron's got a little blog. You know, even us, maybe some of our grandparents and parents um, have stuff like this. You know, talking about politics, talking about uh, per perspectives. Ron is a stamp collector, so uh, says he's a longtime member of the American Philiatric Society, so he trades stamps. Ayn Rand, of course, famously did that, so he had comment with Ayn Rand. And uh, take a look at his bio there. Uh, you'll notice I have something highlighted that you might have to squint in a little bit if you can see. Wait, what is that? Ron Bio, born in Cleveland, Ohio, is what? He is best known as one of the co-founders of the Apple Computer Company. What? Thank you, Robert. Appreciate that, Robert. Thank you for that endorsement as well. Ronald Wayne, that's right. A man you've certainly never thought much about or probably didn't even know existed, was one of the co-founders of the Apple Computer Company. Go to his website, go to his uh, Twitter page. Uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing that, I mean, Alex, the celebrity chef's Alex Guarnaschelli's dog has more followers than one of the three original founders of Apple Computer. And if you want to talk about coulda, shoulda, woulda, this is a story, and Ron is still alive to this day. This is a story that of which none other tops. 
And as you can see, he's listed quite accurately as a co-founder of the Apple Computer Company. To make the long story short, this gentleman worked at Atari, Jobs, and Wozniak, were much younger at the time. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for that. Uh, truly appreciate that. And they wanted to form a company, and Woz and uh, Jobs were always fighting. And Wayne, and I'm, I'm summarizing here, Ronald Wayne was brought on as kind of the adult. He was a couple years older. Thank you, Duncan, for becoming a member, everyone. Duncan, this picnic's for you, man. I'm eating this picnic for you. Um, I'm eating this curly, cur curly whirly for you, Duncan. Thank you for becoming a member. Thanks for being what we're doing. You know, we're, we're learning about Ayn Rand. We're applying it today's ideas. We're becoming friends and, and uh, enriching our lives. So what we're doing all together. So really, really appreciate that. So it's a fascinating story, right? So basically, Apple Computer was founded with these three guys, Jobs and Wozniak at 45. And they were going to give Wayne, or Wayne bought himself in 10% to be the so-called adult in the room. Wayne wrote the first partnership agreement. He, wrote, he illustrated the first Apple logo. He wrote the first Apple One man manual. It didn't last long. Wayne's stint at Apple, uh, saw, he said the pair had nothing to lose. They were young and broke. Wayne had a house, a car, and other assets. He was worried that any debts Apple were to accrue would have ended up falling on him. So again, think about 1976. None of you were born back then. Thank you, Mary Aline. All the way back to 1976. Ronald Wayne was risk averse. He was already in his 40s, okay? He his slot machine business, remember those? His slot machine business had failed. So he had spent a whole year repaying debt. Keep in mind, computers at this point were like um, little toy things that kind of nerds did. I mean, there was, no, there was no market for computers. There was no personal computers. There was no computing anything. This was just like kids tinkering with like little game. I mean, it wasn't, it was, and, and Ronald Wayne was understandably risk averse. He, his enterprise, his slot machine enterprise had gone bankrupt. Steve Jobs had secured a $15,000 line of credit. Apple's first order was a company called The Byte Shop, B-Y-T-E. They had a reputation as a notoriously slow paying vendor. So again, put yourself in Ronald Wayne's context. You know, he's just brought himself out of debt. He's already in his 40s, you know, old man age is, you know, the ghost of Christmas future is knocking. And these punks come along, don't have any money, don't have anything. And they, oh, they're spending, they're buying. And this is a seasoned guy. He's thinking this is never going to work. And he knows that legally he's going to be responsible for paying all this debt, this $15,000 credit line. He had assets. I mean, Jobs was 21 years old. They had no assets. They had nothing. So he was scared. He, was, he didn't want what he did have to be seized by these seemingly you know, unsophisticated punks. And this is not legend, folks. This is real life. After 12 days with the company, Wayne had his name taken off the contract and sold his 10% stake in Apple back to Waz and Jobs for $800. Pretty, <laughs> it's almost unbelievable. Especially considering that just earlier this year, 2022, when Apple hit $182 a share, Ronald Wayne's stake would have been worth $300 billion. Now you might think, oh, well, I, I get that. You know, 
billionaires. He would have been a billionaire like all the other billionaires. No, he would have been the richest man in the world by far. Elon Musk is only worth $209 billion. Jeff Bezos now is only worth $126 billion. So Ronald Wayne would have been the richest man in the world by far. But he wanted no part of it. He wanted no part of it. In fact, shortly after he left the company, Jobs tried to get him back. And according to published reports, Wayne resisted Jobs' attempts to get him to return. Steve Jobs approached him again. He, he had a business contact that he wanted to, you know, uh, uh, Wayne had a business contact. Steve Jobs said, hey, can you forward this to a friend? Wayne refused even to forward Jobs' proposal to purchase a friend's company. He wanted no part of it. He retired to a mobile home park in Pahrump, Nevada, which for our European viewers is not a very happening place. He sells stamps and rare coins and plays penny stocks at a casino. He never owned an Apple product until 2011. It's almost unfathomable story, unless you think about his context and cut him some slack, I think on some level for pursuing his values. He didn't want part of this. He wanted the certainty of his life and to his discredit, when the context changed, he did not. And I think that's the difference. You know, these other guys changed. Uh, the, the gentleman with the Bitcoin, I mean, he tried to do something. Uh, John Elway, I mean, he worked his ass off in other ways. He got with the team, he made money. Ronald Wayne didn't change with the context. He could have purchased Apple stock anytime after the IPO, right? I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, my mom buys stocks in any company. She said, oh, I buy 100 shares. I mean, he could have bought the stock in like 1982 or three when it went, when it went public with some of his savings. He could say, all right, I'll just throw in 100 shares. Even then he would have made, I mean, untold, untold millions. He could have reapproached Jobs at any point and said, you know, Steve, you know, whatever. I was drinking back then. I had a tough time. I'm, I'm really proud of what you did. It isn't anything I can do. I mean, you know, he could have also tried to fund other startups. I mean, how do we know how many of these, um, now it's so common, but these guys, like they fund PayPal and then they go fund all this other stuff. And, they, you know, he didn't even leverage his own celebrity really to some extent, except he did try at least once to profit off his experience. And it's ironically even more sad, I suppose. Wayne had kept his original contract from 1976, right? This was the contract that he signed to give himself or to buy in 10% of Apple for $800. He sold it in the early 90s for $500. He told, I think, Technol or Tech Insider, quote, I had this Apple contract sitting in my filing cabinet covered in dust and cobwebs. And I thought, what do I need to hold on to that for? Well, in 2011, that same contract sold at auction for $1.59 million. So however much you ever feel, coulda, shoulda, woulda, know that Ronald Wayne is still out there. He is still alive. He has not jumped off a window as much as I think I probably would have. And you know, the point is, in all reality, and I think all seriousness, is that you don't have to be infallible. You don't have to be God. We don't have to be God in, in anything we do. 
This is quoting Ms. Rand from the Ayn Rand letter. Infallibility is not a precondition of knowing what one does know, a firmness in one's convictions and of loyalty to one's values. My interpretation now of that is that, especially as an investor, as a professional investor, you don't have to be right. That's not us. We are not God. Uh, we're not right all the time, but we have to be like that gentleman steering the ship. We can't evade evidence. We can't evade reality. And we shouldn't be afraid to alter our course as the context changes. Thank you. This is me thanking you, not in a, not in a, a insincere type of way, in a really sincere type of way, because you are helping us keeping the lights on, especially members. Thank you, Jean. Jean asks, speaking of coulda, woulda, do you recommend any tools for comparing what a portfolio would look like today, given stock investments in the past? For example, comparing a theoretical portfolio against the S&P 500. There's a lot of them out there. I mean, honestly, Gene, there's everything. There's, there's, there's a ton of them out there. I mean, I know some of the kind of um, pay sites like Morningstar, Y Charts. Um, I mean, there's a ton of them out there. I, I, I don't have any to recommend off the top of my head that are, um, I, I don't know any off the, off the top of my head. I'm so sorry. I don't have a quick answer to that, but I have a quick, well, not quick, but a quick important thank you for that. Your generous contribution of 20 American dollars are means the world to us truly. I mean, think about all the all-stars Rosie gets together with this, um, you know, Don Watkins, Alex Epstein, uh, Harry Binswanger has a show in this network. And it wasn't too long ago, 15, 20, 25 years ago, people were still having to swap tapes of Ayn Rand's objectivism, go to people's houses, listen to the records, go home, write their own notes. So we're working so hard to bring this type of interesting material, hopefully just to get you thinking a little bit, thinking a little bit more about Ayn Rand, picking up some of Ayn Rand's materials, you know, quoted a few of them today, certainly Dr. Peacock's podcast, you can start anywhere with there, but uh, start with uh, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology or any of what we try to talk about and evaluate in this show. So people always uh, say, oh, Ayn Rand, I get it. Uh, you're an asshole and you don't care about the poor, right? And what I think you'll learn as I have is the more you learn about Ayn Rand, the more you realize the more there is to learn about Ayn Rand, about objectivism. I mean, there's the whole branch of aesthetics that we rare, I think, well, I shouldn't say we rarely cover on this channel. I mean, we're color, covering it more and more with uh, TV talk with Mark. And uh, I think, uh, um, I, I know there's a lot of shows. They're escaping me now, but you're helping us keep the lights going. So thank you, Gene, once again, being really, really generous today. So I hope you enjoyed the presentation. Tried to keep it tight. You know, unlike some of the presenters here, I've, I've, I'm not saying they don't value your time, but I think you want to try to condense it. You want to kind of have a little bit of Rand's razor, cut it down to its essentials. So thanks for being part of what we do. We're back here. Is, wait, is there anything? Do we have any? Uh, oh, yes, of course we've got upcoming shows. That's the whole thing. This is not just one and done. At 10 p.m. UK time, we've got The Cutting Edge with Lee Pearson and special guest Doug Don Houtman on objectivity and creativity. And there's so much to that. People say, oh, I know objectivism. I mean, the way people have applied some of Ms. Rand's ideas to all elements of life, ultimately, I think for me, I know improving my life and hopefully improving yours as well. So thanks for being part of what we do. We'll see you right here on the channel for more of, of uh, Ayn Rand Center UK and right back here tomorrow 
the same time for the daily objective as all wishing you best premises. Be well.